When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This entire podcast is about books that have changed the world. Today, we're talking about the book that I think changed the world the most, the Hebrew Bible. Specifically, the first book of the Hebrew Bible, Genesis. The book of Genesis is an account of the origins of the world, human beings, and the Jewish people. It is a foundational text for three world religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And for thousands of years, this book has been continuously interpreted and reinterpreted. And it is through all of these different interpretations that the book continues to live on. So it's a fantastic book. It's one of the greatest books ever written, arguably the most most consequential book ever written. And it's still a very powerful, beautifully written book. But it's better to read it without this commitment that it has to be historically true, because then that'll drive you crazy. Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode, I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book that changed the course of history. For this episode, I sat down with Professor Ronald Hendel to discuss the book of Genesis. Let's start with what does the word Genesis mean? Genesis was written in Hebrew, um, and uh, the Jewish community in ancient uh, Alexandria, Egypt, uh, their Hebrew was getting rusty. Uh, they were speaking Aramaic and Greek, um, and so they made a translation into Greek. And so Genesis means um, origin in Greek, and it's actually the translation of um, a couple of passages in Genesis where it says, this is the book of Genesis, in Hebrew, it says, uh, Ze Sefer Toldot, this is the book of generations. Okay, but in Greek, they translate it as, this is the book of Genesis. And so people said, okay, well, what's the name of this book? Well, it says right here in chapter 2 and in chapter 5 that this is the book of Genesis, so we'll call it the book of Genesis. That's how it got the name. In Hebrew, it's called Bereshit, after the first word in Hebrew, which means uh, in the beginning. It's the book of in the beginning. It's the book of origins. Now, the origins of the book of origins are unclear. We don't exactly know how and when this book was created. But there are a few theories. The um, traditional idea, of course, in Judaism and Christianity is that the book was dictated by God to Moses on Mount Sinai. Now, there's some problems with that uh, theory uh, the Bible itself doesn't actually say that. The, the, the Hebrew Bible doesn't actually say that. Um, and uh, the, it's clear if you read it closely that it's a kind of complicated book. There are different uh, versions of different stories. The, the timeline is kind of chopped up. Uh, and so uh, some medieval interpreters noted that you know this some of these passages couldn't have been written by Moses. Some of them refer to a time after Moses. For example, 
um, the list of the kings of Edom says these guys were kings before there was a king over Israel. Well, obviously, whoever wrote that sentence was writing it after there was a king over Israel, which was long after the time of Moses. So medieval uh, interpreters, both Jewish and Christian, uh, started noticing that. Uh, and then people in the Enlightenment and, and uh, the centuries since then have worked on these clues and found more clues and worked out elaborate models for who wrote this book. So the punchline is that modern scholars, and, and there's still some differ, differences in different models for this, but the one that I think is more or less correct says that Genesis was, was uh, originally a compilation of at least three different texts. These three texts each discuss the origins of the world. They are known today as the J-source, or Yahwist, the E-source, or Elohist, and the P-source, or Priestly. So each of these sources, uh, J, E, and P, uh, they were written, I guess, more or less during the period of the Israelite monarchy. The Israelite monarchy ruled from about 1047 BC to 930 BC by a succession of kings named Saul, David, and Solomon. In 930 BC, the monarchy split into two kingdoms, the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. Around 400 years later, in 586 BC, the Babylonian Empire invaded and conquered Israel and forced many Jewish priests, prophets, and scribes to live in exile in Babylon. The exiled Jewish people took scrolls with them full of their stories, laws, customs, and traditions. They also took the three books, the J, E, and P sources. Although we don't know for sure, it is believed that during this exile, one or more of the captured Jewish people began editing together these three sources into one cohesive book, which would become the Book of Genesis. Before too long, the Persian Empire overthrew the Babylonian Empire, and the Jewish prisoners were allowed to return to their homeland. They brought back with them the Book of Genesis, which became part of the Torah. The Torah has several names, including the Pentateuch and the first five books of Moses. It is the collection of the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And then this was brought back to Jerusalem in the period of the Restoration after the exile is over. And you have a nice uh, scene where the priest Ezra, who just came back from the Babylonian exile, reads the Torah to the people. Uh, and they start crying, and then they say, don't be sad, we should be rejoicing. And so then they start rejoicing, and they have a big festival. Uh, but it's a lovely scene because here we see the book itself, and this is Genesis and the other five books of the Torah or Pentateuch. This is when they're first made public. Now, we don't know if it actually happened this way, but it's a lovely scene. It's a lovely picture. In the biblical imagination, this is when Genesis became a, a public book in the early... Uh, post-exilic period during this restoration. And so ever since then, people have been reading Genesis and have been crying and laughing and, you know, uh, mulling it over. And, you know, it, it shapes their worldview and their existence and it shapes their conflicts. Because it's a complicated book, there's often more than one position about things. And so Genesis is a wonderful book to supply different sides of arguments because it, it's, in a sense, kind of arguing within itself. 
The authors who wrote the J, E, and P sources that make up Genesis seem to have been drawing on popular creation ideas of their time. So these are books that are written, you know, scrolls that are written by these uh, writers who we don't know their actual names, so we have this alphabet soup for them. But they didn't make these things up. Uh, you know, the fact that there's two different creation stories, there's two different flood stories, it's clear that each of these writers was drawing on older stories, older uh narratives, myths, legends, folklore, genealogies. Uh, so the writers are drawing on, you know, old traditions in ancient Israel. So this is what gets us into the oral part. It's, it's clear that these guys were writers, and, and some of them, particularly the J writer and sometimes the P writer, are really beautiful writers, um, but they are, as, as literary as they are, they're drawing for their material on old traditions, old stories uh, in, in, uh, that they heard growing up, that you know, their parents would have told, their grandparents, the tribal elders. This is a storytelling culture, as all traditional cultures are. Uh, some of these stories we can see earlier versions of in other cultures, in earlier cultures. For example, I mentioned the flood story. There's a version of the flood story in the J source, there's a version in the P source, and they've been edited together in Genesis chapters 6 through 9. But we have versions of what's pretty much the same story that are a thousand years older from ancient Babylon. And so you can really see that these are members of a family. Okay, so like the version of the flood in the Gilgamesh epic is the great uncle of the version of the two versions in Genesis. So the discovery of these ancient Near Eastern antecedents to the, to the stories in Genesis is a remarkable chapter in uh, you know, modern history and modern thought and how we think about Genesis and how we think about the Bible and we, how we think about the world. When you read Genesis today, you can still see traces of these three independent sources. This is why you have some doublets, some repetitions, some contradictions, because the different stories go their own directions. Uh, sometimes they have different kinds of characterization. They have different concepts of things like how God and humans interact and the nature of plots and fates and things like that. So this is a way of—it not only explains who wrote Genesis and what Genesis consists of— but it's a model for reading the book such that the book can make sense and that you can see this, the nuances, the resonances, the literary continuities, the thematic uh, uh, complications in a deeper way when you realize you're really reading two or three different books at the same time. Could you take us through a kind of overview of what are the, are the major stories or elements? Genesis is, on the one hand, a kind of self-standing book. On the other hand, it's also the first installment of the first five books, the Pentateuch. And so one way to look at it, it's like, um, uh, you know, it's like the first book of a trilogy, although it's actually a quintilogy. Okay, so it's a self-standing book, but it also is part of a larger story. So that's so you have to keep that in mind. So are there things in Genesis, for example, that foreshadow things that happen in the book of Exodus, or things that happen in the book of Numbers or the book of Deuteronomy? So the Pentateuch was crafted 
holistically, kind of as one work. Yes, the Pentateuch was crafted holistically, and in some ways it's divided into five scrolls simply because of the uh, length, the material length that you could make a scroll. So the book of Genesis consists of two uh, different sequences that kind of fit together. The first sequence is Genesis 1 through 11, which are the stories of the origin of the world. We call this the primeval narrative. Uh, there's two creation stories, a creation in Genesis 1, which is the very magnificent one where God says, let there be light, and there was light, and ends up creating humans in his image, uh, and then blessing the seventh day, as the, which becomes later on in the book of Exodus, the, the ritual, the commandment to observe the Sabbath. That's one of the connections between Genesis and later books. Then there's the Garden of Eden story, which is the beginning of the J uh, scroll, the original J scroll. And that also is a creation story. It starts out with the creation of, of the first man, Adam, out of the earth. And there's this wonderful wordplay there. Adam means human, Adama means earth. So God creates Adam out of the Adama. And this relationship between humans and the earth is a, re is a repeating theme in those in the J stories of the primeval narrative. Uh, then you have the creation of the woman and the snake, and then they have this problem about the fruit of the tree of the uh, uh, knowledge of good and evil, and the people, they disobey God by eating that fruit, but then there's this ambiguous uh, response where their eyes are opened and they somehow become like gods, but what they see is that they're naked, which isn't being like God. So there's all sorts of wonderful ambiguities there. And they feel shame because they're all of a sudden they realize they're naked. They didn't realize that before because they were innocent. And then God punishes them and kicks them out of the garden because they disobeyed him. And that he doesn't want them now to eat this other fruit, the fruit of the tree of life, which would make them immortal which would make them holy gods. Okay, now they've become like God with respect to the knowledge of good and evil, and he kicks them out so they don't go to the next step and, and completely leave the realm of being human by becoming immortal. So this is why we have knowledge of things that are both powerful but also disturbing. One of the things we have knowledge of is our own mortality, and these things make us, make us different than the other animals. But we're still animals. We're not God because we're not gods because we die. We're still earth creatures made of the earth and to the earth to the dust you'll return because from it you were taken. So we're still earth creatures. And so humans are are you know a complicated thing. We're earth creatures, but we're also like gods because we have this greater consciousness, which includes anxieties and guilt and, and sexuality and embarrassment and things like that. In this way, Genesis not only offers a creation story for humankind, but also an explanation for the complexity and nature of humans. It sends people from the world, the perfect world of creation, into the problematic world that we actually live in. Then there's this sequence of other stories, Cain and Abel, they don't get along very well. The flood story, it gets very wet. The Tower of Babel story, people build the tower up to heaven. God doesn't like that. And so he sends them down and scatters them across the face of the earth and makes them different languages so they can never gang up on heaven again. So these are the stories of the primeval narrative, and they pertain to all people. 
All people are scattered across the face of the earth. All people are mortal. All people have feelings of shame and guilt and embarrassment, and but also a kind of greater consciousness than animals. So these are the, these are stories of the creation of, of human beings and the creation of the world in which human beings live today, which started out differently. We started out in this innocent state of nature, and now we live in a more complicated uh, and more problematic world. In Genesis, the descendants of Adam and Eve create a corrupt civilization full of greed, hatred, and war. There is only one good descendant, a man named Noah. God decides to start over with the whole humanity project, but this time with Noah and his family. He instructs Noah to build an ark and round up pairs of animals. God then causes 40 days of rain, which causes a huge flood and wipes out the rest of life on earth. After the flood, Noah and his family repopulate the earth. The rest of Genesis tells the origin story of the people of Israel, who begin with a righteous man named Abraham, a descendant of one of Noah's sons. And so you start having the story of Abraham. God chooses Abraham, and he migrates from Mesopotamia to the land of Israel, which is the land of the promise, and he's living among the Canaanites and so forth. And so the the rest of Genesis concerns the stories of Abraham and his wives, Sarah and Hagar, and his children with them. And then it goes to the next generation, Isaac, and then to the generation of Jacob, and then to the generation of Jacob's children, uh, Joseph and his brothers, who are the 12, th those 12 sons are the ancestors of the 12 tribes of Israel. And then eventually, uh, Joseph goes down into Egypt. He's sold into Egypt by his brothers. Again, you have the story of brothers that don't get along with each other, like Cain and Abel. And they end up down in Egypt. And then this sets the stage. Then Jacob dies and Joseph dies, and the book comes to an end. And this sets the stage for the next thematic cycle in the book of Exodus, which is the story of the Exodus. So Genesis sets the stage for Exodus, but also has these two coherent kind of narrative cycles, the primeval cycle and what we call the ancestral uh, cycle or the ancestral narrative. I think we could maybe move into its effect in the world. It's, it's, you said it was, you know, arguably, and I think I would agree, it's the most influential, consequential text of all time. Um, so, you know, it's so, it's such a big story to tell about the influence of the Hebrew Bible. Um, but I suppose we should start there. You know, how, how would you try to convey the story of its life in the world? Yeah, well, as you say, that's a big topic. Um, I, I would start by saying that this genealogical model um, not only defines uh, the ethnicity and the religion of ancient ancient Judaism, but, you know, modern Judaism too, but also part of this branching also uh, takes in the other children of Abraham, the other Abrahamic religions. So Christianity very clearly is a branching off of the same family, okay, it is a branch of the same family and, and, and therefore has the same ancestors and the same with Islam. So Islam also, uh, Genesis is a very important book for them. And, you know, they are descended in the, in the family tree, they're descended from Ishmael. So they're also, you know, children of Abraham. 
there is a sense in the very core of Christianity that it is one of the children of Abraham. Okay, and so therefore the Hebrew Bible and the book of Genesis are part of the sacred canon of Christianity. I mean, everybody knows that. Uh, but they're also, th that same concept is shared with, with Islam as well, which emerged later, but traces itself from Ishmael uh, back to Abraham too. So there's a family relationship among these religions, these Abrahamic religions, that then from that you can see the influence of Genesis on Western culture, because it's everywhere, in every Christian land, in every Jewish community, in every Islamic land, and that's the whole West. Part of what keeps this text alive is the question of how to interpret it. There's arguments going on within the book, okay? And so every later generation also argues about the book, about what the implications are of this story or that law or whether we have to follow this or whether they follow that or whether, whether inter we're interpreting this correctly or whether they're interpreting it incorrectly. So there's a kind of argument, an ongoing argument over the last, you know, 2,000 years or so about how to read Genesis. What are the implications? And these things, you know, what I would say is that the way people interpret Genesis correlates with and has a kind of causal relationship with the way people interpret the world. So to be a little cute about it, the way people interpret the word is often the same way they interpret the world. And so the world and the word have a kind of mutual relationship and a change in the understanding of one can make a change in the understanding of the other. And this is, so this is really a history of Western thought and a history of Western religion. And everything that changes in one part of our fabric changes how we look at Genesis. And, and a way how we look differently at something in Genesis changes something else in our fabric of belief. At first, Genesis was read literally as a true history of how the world came to be. But over the centuries, it gained new interpretations. For those Jewish people who stayed in Babylon during and after the exile, life was brutally hard. They were first subjected to Babylonian rule, then Persian rule, then Greek and Roman rule. So people started to believe, and to read in Genesis, a sense that the world was fundamentally wrong. They said God is going to come and intervene and punish all of the wicked rulers of this world and usher in a new golden age, kind of a new Garden of Eden. And so this is called apocalypticism. So, the, the, so this apocalyptic view of the world, this idea that we're living in a bad era, God's going to come fix it, and then the righteous will live a perfect life thereafter, uh, and all the wicked will be punished. And, and eventually, you, you get this development of the idea that uh, the righteous will live in heaven and the wicked will live in hell. This is the development of that kind of dualism. So these apocalyptic ideas become the lens through which people start reading Genesis. And this becomes an idea that these are the secrets of Genesis. Okay, that the that, that Genesis is a kind of code that for the inspired interpreter like Enoch or like, some, you know, Daniel or somebody who has angels who can tell him the meanings of these things, uh, th this is a book of apocalyptic secrets, secrets about the end time, secrets about the end of the world, secrets about the Messiah. So apocalyptic interpretation, I would say, is the first big change in the life of Genesis. 
The next big change happened while the Jewish people were under Greek and Roman rule. Classical Greek philosophy, especially Plato, was the dominant framework for making sense of the world in this region and time. And so people started reading Genesis, Jews and Christians, uh, as a repository of symbolic expressions of platonic or philosophical truths. So truth doesn't conflict with truth. If this is a true philosophy, then the Bible must have it there somewhere. And if it doesn't have it in the plain sense of the text, then it must have it in a kind of secret, deeper meaning of the text. So people, the, the first one that, that really did this at a big uh, extent was a guy named Philo of Alexandria, who was written, he was a contemporary of Paul and Jesus, uh, but he was writing in Alexandria, Egypt. Uh, and he was a Greek speaker, he wrote in Greek, and he basically says that, you know, all these platonic ideas are really Moses thought of them first. And so they're all there in the Bible and in Genesis, if you read closely enough. So, for example, the four um, rivers that flow out of Eden, those aren't really just rivers. Their deeper, their deeper hidden meaning is that these are the four virtues, Okay, so the story teaches philosophical lessons on how to live and ultimately of how to gain wisdom and ascend to a kind of um, knowledge of the true world of spiritual forms that transcend the material world that you and I live in. So Platonic philosophy and Platonic interpretation becomes, it's more commonly called allegory. So allegorical interpretations of Genesis becomes a very big thing um, in Judaism and then particularly in Christianity. So you'll find people like Augustine and Origen and all the church fathers, they're doing all these allegorical interpretations of these biblical texts. And that's what they, you know, that, that's the cool thing to do when you're interpreting Genesis, to, is to draw out all these allegorical meanings. I hadn't expected, actually, that these turns would persist. There would just be new ways and that they stay with us. So we have apocalyptic reading and then we have allegorical reading. Yeah. And then you have, you know, within Judaism, you have uh, Midrashic readings, which kind of take some of the qualities of apocalyptic and allegorical readings and kind of puts them on steroids. So you have all sorts of strange symbolic things going on within the book of Genesis. So for example, in Midrashic reading, every verse of Genesis is potentially connected with any verse elsewhere in the Bible. So the Bible becomes a kind of hypertext or a kind of matrix. Okay, so it's it's a bunch of every verse kind of floats by itself and can can be connected up with any other verse. So, for example, the first verse of the first word of the Bible, Bereshit, in the beginning. Say, well, there must be secret meanings to that. So the the rabbis who are doing midrash say, well, let's look at other occurrences of that word. And so they find the word reshit in the book of Proverbs, where it's wisdom speaking. And wisdom says, I was the beginning, the reshit of his ways when God created the universe. I was the first creation of his first of the acts of his ways. So they say, oh, well, that's commenting on this Bereshit in Genesis 1. So now we learn that Reshit really refers to wisdom. And it was also a commonplace in rabbinic thought that wisdom is the instantiation of wisdom is the Torah, the Pentateuch. 
And then they read the preposition on that first word, bereshit, instead of in the beginning with a temporal sense, they read it with an instrumental sense, with the beginning. So then they read it as with the beginning, which they've already determined is the Torah. So with the Torah, God created heaven and earth. And so this becomes a marvelous interpretation of the first beginning of Genesis, that God not only, that the God, that the Torah itself is a pre-existent thing, the embodiment of wisdom and, you know, all knowledge that God consulted. And with the Torah, God created heaven and earth. So this is just a little taste of Midrashic interpretation. It takes this idea of secret meanings and puts it within the context of every other word in the Hebrew Bible, and you can generate all sorts of new meanings by making these intertextual connections. It's also a very marvelous, kaleidoscopic kind of interpretation. The next interpretation came in the 11th century. A French rabbi known as Rashi thought all of these cryptic allegorical readings of the Bible were going a little too far. He was interested in returning to the actual words of the text— and their literal meaning. A uh, medieval Catholic commentator um, named Nicholas of Lyra learned Hebrew and read Rashi, and he brought a lot of Rashi's interpretations into, into the Christian world, into you know, people who are reading Latin. And so through Nicholas of Lyra, a certain German monk uh, was an expert on Nicholas of Lyra, uh, this is uh, Martin Luther. And so through Luther, these ideas of the importance of the plain sense and that allegory, allegory is a little bit frivolous, Luther established that as a major theme of the Protestant Reformation. It was one of the main ways of him undercutting the authority of the Catholic Church. He said anybody can interpret Scripture because it's the plain sense that counts. You don't need to build these elaborate allegorical interpretations and these wild platonizing things. Luther started out as an Augustinian monk, and he says in, in one of his uh, memoirs, he says, you know, I could allegorize anything. I would even allegorize the toilet bowl. He would find secret platonic meanings in the toilet bowl. But then he came to see that that was all frivolous nonsense, and it was all promulgated by the Catholic Church to mystify people and to, to um, kind of fool people into accepting its own authority. He said, no, you don't need the authority of the Catholic Church. Allegory is silly. It's nonsense. Everyone, this, the plain sense is the real sense, and anybody uh, can understand the plain sense. And then he put his money where his mouth is and translated the Bible into German so that everybody could read it. And so he... so. From Rashi to Luther, you have this huge reaction against the these cryptic senses of Scripture, including the apocalyptic, the allegorical, and from, from Rashi, the Midrashic. So that's really a major turning point, too. This was also a time when the world was becoming more empirical. Scientific advancements were starting to offer new explanations for the wonders of the world. There were also major developments in global exploration and discovery. Columbus and other European explorers were discovering new lands not mentioned in the Bible. And that was changing the way that people related to this sacred text. So this is the age of discovery. And people are finding out that it's not the 
secret senses of things that are most remarkable, but that the world itself, you know, the world of nature, the world of culture, the, you know, Galileo pointing his telescope up to the sky, you know, somebody making a microscope and looking at these little things, people going to, you know, North America and South America and Asia and Africa, the world is just filled with wonders such that you don't need to say that these wonders only exist in the in the uh, in the secret sense that the the plain sense is is full of wonders and marvels so this rise of discovery this rise of science this rise of learning the physical world came to be seen as more real than the platonic world and so this so the way that the world is being interpreted is influencing the way the word is being interpreted. The plain sense becomes much more fascinating and detailed and something that was, you know, rich with meaning. And this posited symbolic world came to be seen as kind of a weird fiction. So what's the next big shift? Well, you get kind of an intensification of those shifts that had already started. Uh, science keeps going. You have people discovering that the world is really old, that, you know, rocks are really old. And this caused a big problem because the Bible says the world is only 6,000 years old. So that was a big problem, took a long time to get over. Then you have this weird guy, Darwin, saying biology works this way, and that's different when the Bible says. And, and here's one of the rubs. At this point, as you're already seeing with the Galileo situation, the church no longer has an easy path back to the spiritual sense. So you can't say, oh, well, you know, it doesn't really mean that humans are a separate creation in Genesis 1. This is a kind of allegory of the dignity of the soul or something like that. But you don't have that access to Platonic interpretation anymore because of Luther and his legacy. So you're kind of stuck with the plain sense. So once the plain sense starts to conflict with science, you have this kind of stuff that's still going on today. You know, Judaism went through its own enlightenment, uh, where the same where Midrash becomes seen also as this kind of, you know, lovely, touching, but not actually correct way of interpreting the Bible. So modernity is still stuck in this place where what is what is the authority of the Bible compared to other ways that we have of gaining knowledge? And we're still enmeshed in this argument about how to understand Genesis in relation to the world. You know, I would say it's beautiful ancient literature. And it's not necessarily true. This is one of my favorite songs, the Gershwin brothers wrote this song, the things that you're liable to read in the Bible, it ain't necessarily so. But that's a hard thing for the modern mind to wrap itself around uh, without getting all tied up in knots. So this is so the so the story of modernity is still the relationship between the word and the world. Fundamentalists reject science. We're finding that's a problem with COVID because they don't believe that vaccines are are uh, efficacious because they don't trust scientists anyway because scientists believe in Darwin. You know, you have people who say that religious is religion is just false because it's not historically true, and so you have people 
um, who are kind of militantly anti-religious and who don't understand religion as a result, which is also a problem. Uh, and you have all these culture wars and things like that. But you also have, you know, people still being inspired by these stories and creating great art and novels and theology and um, literature. You know, so it, so it's still a kind of bubbling um, presence in in our in our lives, even though there's still so many arguments over it. For thousands of years, Genesis has given its readers a foundation a story that helps give an account of why the world exists, who we are, and how we should act. In a chaotic and unpredictable world, Genesis, this ancient set of stories, offers grounding, continuity, and deep meaning. Everything in the world that we think about is kind of related in this you know, genealogical web of thinking and practices and attitudes that, you know, lead back to Genesis one way or the other. So, you know, if, if we're in this kind of labyrinth of history and thought, Genesis is one, is one of the keys to that labyrinth. Beyond that, you know, it's just, it's just so deeply enmeshed in everything that we do, even when we don't realize it. It really, it really is a kind of shadow presence in so much of the world today. Writ Large is produced by Jack Pombriant and me, Zachary Davis. Script editing is by Galen Beebe. We get help from Ferron Du. Our theme song is by Ian Koss, and our branding is by Dan Petchy. We're a member of LitHub Radio. Writ Large is a Lyceum original production. You can find us on our website, writlarge.fm. There you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thank you for listening. See you next time.